Let's go to Acts chapter 4. So over the last several weeks, as we've been in this chapter, we've been considering how this church was unified. They prayed together in one accord. They were a multitude of one, and they had all things common. Last week, the focus was on how they sold their possessions so that none would lack. And then they distributed to those who had a need. It wasn't socialism, but it was meant to meet the needs of those who had it. This was a church, and I really think it's hard for us to fully grasp, but this is a church that was literally standing alone in the midst of a city and a government that wanted them dead. The religious leaders in Israel obviously hated them. They put in jeopardy everything that they, they did to make their, their money. But they were, they were making it corruptly. I, I understand that. They, were, they had temple currency. They were robbing people on exchange rates. They were selling offerings that God wouldn't approve of, and, and it was just a mess. Um, the Romans, they could easily start to view this movement as sedition. And so this is a group of people that are on their own, so to speak. And so they were selling their lands and their possessions and they were helping those who were there um, because they would have been ostracized. They would have been shunned by the synagogues and by the temple. And when that happens in that day, it greatly affected your life. And it could cause you to not find employment, all kind of things. And so understand what's happening here is a lot more than just you know, you know what? I just feel like selling my house today and giving it to uh, Adrian there. Right? Um, th- this was a need that was taking place. This was something that was uh, very unique here to Jerusalem. I gave you several reasons why it may be they were doing this spontaneous act because it really was nothing commanded. And, and it still has never been a command by God to any church to sell everything and just give it to everybody. Um, this was very unique to this situation. And most compelling to me would be the thought that Jesus had foretold of the city's destruction. And so what's the point hanging on to everything in Jerusalem? It's not going to be yours soon anyway because Jesus said it's going to be destroyed. And sure enough, it, it was in 70 AD. Whatever their reason, one thing we know is they held on to God so tightly that they let go of the things of the world. And that was the closing challenge last week to let God be all that you need. He is to be your portion in this life. Don't allow the things of this world to hinder your walk with God. Remember, we're only passing through. And that becomes more and more real to me every year that goes by. We have here no continuing city. But we seek one to come. So don't set your affections on the things of this earth, but set your affections on things above. Lay up treasures in heaven. You cannot take it with you, but you can send it ahead. Luke 12, 33 and 34, Sell that ye have and give alms. Provide yourself bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth nor moth corrupteth, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. As we begin tonight, let's read verses 32 through 37 yet again of this chapter. It says, beginning in verse 32, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart 
and one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any of them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of Constellation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. We've seen in this chapter how this church is unified. They are praying together, they are witnessing together, they are sacrificial together. In our text, they were clearly sacrificial monetarily. It's okay, amen. We, we can talk about money in church. Amen. They were sacrificial monetarily. Uh, any great church that you've ever heard of or been a part of, I'll promise you there's an account somewhere in that church's history where the people were very sacrificial. Those who would give of their time, their treasure, and their talents. And for a church in action to continue going forward, we have to have continued sacrifice in these areas. Those who serve in any area are giving of their time. And, and I just want to give a, a nod to our bus ministry folks real quick. Um, they, they put in the hours here. And I know all of you put in time that are teaching and so forth, going to the press or whatever. But anytime you're serving, you're, you're giving of your time. Those who use their abilities are giving of their talents. Those who give sacrificially uh, are giving of their treasure. Now, one may not always be able to do all three. We've had people in here who have been on very tight budgets. Widows, for example. Um, we've had some who have gotten sick and now they can't use their ability. Um, and so you may not can do all three, but I'll promise you, you can do something. Amen. Because God has put you in this body for a reason. Amen. And we are members one of another, as we heard this morning from Pastor DeGarmo. Was that you, brother? Okay, good. Um, the way Cindy was acting, I thought maybe she wrote it for you, but... You know, it's called sacrifice for a reason. <laughs> we don't do these things because it's always convenient. Or because it's always easy. Or because it isn't costly. But we make sacrifices for the cause of Christ because He is worthy. God gave sacrificially in giving Christ. And now we should be giving sacrificially as well. I love the song entitled, I Gave My Life for Thee. And in it, the following questions are asked. I gave my life for thee, what hast thou given for me? I left it all for thee, hast thou left all for me? I've borne it all for thee, what hast thou borne for me? I bring rich gifts to thee, what hast thou brought for me? So can you say tonight, you are living sacrificially for the cause of Christ? It doesn't mean you have to go put in your two weeks notice and go full-time ministry, so to speak, right? 
you're in full-time ministry, whether you realize it or not. But are you, are, are you able to say, yes, I, I am giving sacrificially of my time, my talent, and my treasure? Or are you one who it is still your time? It is, it is your talent. It is your treasure. And, and I, just, I just heard this last week. It's, it's, it's that time is what I need. So church isn't really a priority first because I need that time. No, 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 it's not your time. Well, I better stop there. Living sacrificially for God will be something you're compelled to do because the love of Christ constrains you. You can't help but do it because you are being constrained. And that's because you've been apprehended by the Lord. God gave all, are you giving all? And you don't do so because you're forced, right? I shouldn't have to get up here and twist your arm to do whatever. And if you do it for me, you do it for the wrong reasons. And so you want to be led of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that will give you peace that when things maybe don't work out just right, you will have peace that, no, I'm following the Lord's will. As we move along in this text, we see at the beginning of verse 35 that those who sold their possessions, they brought the prices of the things sold and they laid them down at the apostles' feet. I believe there's a couple of important observations we can make from this statement that they laid them down at the apostles' feet. Um, First, we see that they gave to their local church. Let me say that again. They, they gave to their local church. Today we have a plethora of organizations and charities to choose from. And America has historically been the most giving nation on the earth. Whenever there's a disaster somewhere, we step up. And, and there's any number of places you can put your money towards, but your first priority ought to be your local church. Your giving belongs to God through the church. They do not belong first to any parachurch organization that does not have local church oversight. And I'll get on my soapbox just for a second and tell you I'm against the idea of parachurch organizations. I'm not against if you give to them because I realize where we're at in our day, but there ought to really be local church oversight. Malachi 3.10 says, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. You say, where's that? That there may be meat in mine house. It's to the church. Prove me now herewith. You want to prove God exists? That's how he says to do it. It's the one place in the Bible where God says, prove me. Give. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. That's pretty good. And there's more that's added. He'll rebuke the devourer for your sake and so forth. The pattern throughout the Old Testament was you bring your giving to the house of God and the same pattern is found in the New Testament. Jesus talked about when a gift is brought before the altar, which signifies a place of worship. The poor widow who gave her two mites did so at the temple. Paul gathered collections from local churches that he would be sending ahead to other churches in need. God's design is for us to first give to our local church. 
Again, I'm not saying you're wrong to give to other organizations or charities outside of your church, but the pattern in the Bible is clear. Why is this so? To take care of the widows, the fatherless, the poor, to take care of the household of faith, to operate the house of God, and to take care of the ministers serving in the local church. Ah, there it is. I knew it. I knew we were going to get to it. The preacher's talking about money. He wants to get rich working two days a week. I assure you nobody here is getting rich. I'm very grateful for what I receive. But I can make more money. I'm going to put this in perspective for you. I had doubts about doing this, but there's always doubters in the the crowd. And just so you know, our staff isn't overpaid by any stretch of the imagination. I want to give you a military comparison because most of you are veterans or are serving active duty or have served. I make the most out of anybody here. And I make less than an E4 on active duty. Does that help some of you guys? When you include their housing allowance and their sustenance. And I make the most. In fact, I barely make more than an A1C. Nobody here is getting rich. So I don't want anybody to ever have the attitude, well, you're just doing this so that you can make money. I am not doing this just to make money. Listen, I don't, I don't get to say these things often. Just let me have my minute. Now, you think about the others on our staff that are making less. What does that say? It says our staff is, is the lower end of the enlisted corps. And, and this isn't a slam. Do not take it as a slam. Do not put words in my mouth. I'm just giving you perspective. I know this church is doing the best we can do. That's a fact. And if you only knew the weight of the burden I feel trying to take care of our staff and how I wish we could do more, but we're doing the best we can. But please, please don't ever get the mindset that the servants here are hirelings. No one here is making what they could be making in the secular world. And the truth is, I'm not doing this for money. I would literally do this for no pay. I would be bivocational. But I can tell you by being bivocational, the work would suffer. I would not be able to study the way I do, and you would not be able to be fed the way you are. And it would have a trickle effect. Um, And what is a pastor's primary responsibility? Feed the flock of God. So keep that in mind. I've used the illustration before. You can either have home-cooked meal or have a microwave meal. Do you want something from scratch? Or do you want something pre-prepared that I just kind of heat up and... It made sense to me when I thought about it, Tim. Not the flaky potatoes that you try to mix the milk and the water in and get it just right. 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained. This is the Lord's idea. It's not the church's. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So first we see they brought their money to their local church. That's a, that's a pretty good thing, right? Second, we see they laid it down at the apostles' feet. And if you were offended at point one, you're going to hate point two. 
Now, we're not going to start the practice of you bringing your offerings and laying them before my feet. Um, I think having the box in the back that Colin is so aptly kicked back against. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not saying you got to move your arm, brother. Uh, you look comfy. Keep doing your thing. But I think that's far more scriptural anyway. Um, I think we're fine there. And, and, and this was something unique taking place here, but... I do want you to see how the oversight of their giving was entrusted to the apostles. God's design is for the pastors to take the oversight of the flock of God. That includes the giving. But to be safe, Peter added in 1 Peter 5.2, not for filthy lucre. Paul stated the same thing. And if you get a pastor who's greedy of gain, you need to correct him or fire him. Because there are hirelings. And and I believe the Bible to teach that if there's more than one pastor, then there is one head pastor who has the final say. And I'm saying this for DeGarmo's sake. He's been rebellious lately. (laughs) I'm just trying to lighten it up, okay? The, the letters to the seven churches in the Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, were written to the angel of that church. The angel of that church in context is the pastor. And we know that Ephesus had more than one pastor because Paul called for the elders of the church of Ephesus in Acts 20, I think. And so God was addressing one head of that church, the under-shepherd, the pastor. I realize... We live in a day of mistrust for leadership in churches. I I get that. But our Lord ultimately holds one pastor accountable. And, And we know there's pastors who have abused their position. Brother, you know, you live through it. And and I've been a part of churches where in the past the pastor had cooked the books in order to take missions monies. And so we know there's a distrust, and and to some extent, I certainly understand that distrust. But a church in action will have trusted leadership in place. And I pray I've earned your trust. I know that may take some time. But I promise you this, how you designate your giving here, it is where it'll go. As far as I know, we have never, ever deviated from that. And if we have, we got permission because something changed. Now, I can tell you the day is coming when I'll request that certain decisions, such as staff pay, be relegated to the offices of the deacon and pastor. We can talk more about that when we get to chapter 6. But I believe as a church grows, there comes a point where everything doesn't have to be out here in the open and be picked apart and have too many opinions, too many voices. For sure, major purchases would be brought to a vote. But there's a reason we have deacons. There's a reason we have leaders. And again, it comes back to trust. And for those who don't know yet how I operate, because I know there's some new folks around, I will never be dismissed from any church meeting so you can discuss my pay behind my back because that is not having the oversight thereof. I don't need to be dismissed from any meeting that takes place in this church. 
If you want to discuss my pay in the open, I'll be there. But I have already been in discussions privately with our deacons and Pastor DeGarmo about some of this. But I'm still chewing on it. Don't get your feathers all ruffled tonight. <laughs> Nobody's got to be a peacock tonight. We're all good. But I think there are some ways we can structure ourselves better with the growth. Um, but listen, you ought to be able to trust those whom God has trusted. Amen. Or entrusted, I should say. What we see here in our text is this church trusted its leaders. That's a pretty good starting point. And there's a lesson here on church structure in this verse. They gave to their church and they entrusted their leaders. All right, enough of that, amen? Verses 36 and 37. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus. Is that enough information? <laughs> That's a lot of information about this guy right here. Um, so Pastor DeGarmo preached on this November the 6th. He said it might be a few weeks till we get there. He was right. <laughs> it's been six weeks. Now, to be fair, two of those weeks were not my fault. We had anniversary days, and then we had... Uh, Raymond Jones, and so it's really only been four, brother, but you're still correct, and, and he did a great job preaching about being a Barnabas. I hope you remember that message. If you didn't, please go back and listen to it, um, but for the sake of this being a verse-by-verse study, let's take a fresh look at these verses, just for fun. <laughs> Out of all those who joined in with this act of charity, this is a remarkable act of charity, out of all those who joined in with this, isn't this interesting that there's special mention made of this one man? And we're, we're given quite a bit about him. He, he's Joseph. He's surnamed Barnabas. It means the son of consolation. He's a Levite. He's of the country of Cyprus. And I'm left to wonder, why is this man mentioned and nobody else is mentioned? There must be a reason. I'm not sure I have a satisfactory answer, but I want to give you some thoughts. It could be he's, inter- he, he's mentioned here to introduce us to a man that's going to be mentioned in 22 other verses in this book. And maybe we're just getting a fuller look at his character. Because Barnabas is a great man in our New Testament. You'll also find him mentioned three times in Galatians, once in 1 Corinthians, and once in Colossians. But there's probably more to this than just an introductory statement about this man. Nothing's in the Bible by accident. It could have something to do with the fact that he was a Levite from Cyprus. A Levite. There's not many Levite converts at this point. Levites were the the priestly line. And that could be one of the things. This is a Levite who is now a Christian. We also see how he was a child of Israel, though he's from Cyprus, which means his family was likely there as a result of being dispersed and what we read in the Old Testament. It also highlights how accustomed the children of Israel had become to living in a foreign land. I mean, why didn't they go back? Well, we've covered that on Wednesday night, so I don't want to go there. Levites were not given a portion of land in Israel. They they didn't have a lot, right? Because God said of the Levites, I'm your portion. And so they didn't have land designated to them, though there is an occurrence in Joshua 24, 33, 
where a Levite had been given land. Not by the lot, but just given land. When Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, we're told he was buried in a hill which was given to Phinehas in Mount Ephraim. And, and so that is an instance where a Levite did own some land in the land. And so some people say, well, they could have purchased land if they wanted. They just weren't given land by inheritance. I, I don't know. But outside of, of Israel, they did acquire land. In the case of Joseph here, it appears he had land in Cyprus, which was an island in the Mediterranean. And some believe this is why special mention is made here of Joseph giving this land. Cyprus contained very fertile fields, and therefore any land would have been considered very valuable in those days. And, and it still is that way. Agriculture is a, a big thing in Cyprus. Some think Joseph, Joseph had land in Cyprus, and that's the land he sold to give to the converts in need in Jerusalem. And this would have been considered an exceptional act of charity and sacrifice since he was in no danger of losing any land in Jerusalem. Jesus had not prophesied, um, you know, hey, be ready in Cyprus. So some people see this as he had this valuable land in Cyprus, he sold it, and he used that money for those in Jerusalem. Whatever the reason, we see in verse 37 that he sold his possessions, he, he also brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And whether it was because of this event or not, we're not explicitly told, but the apostles gave him the surname Barnabas, which being interpreted is the son of consolation which means someone who comforts and exhorts. This Greek word for consolation, that's how it's transla translated in other places. Consolation, comfort, and exhort. And when you think about it, this is very high praise for somebody. The son of consolation. Why is that such high praise? Because in Luke chapter 2, Simeon waited for the consolation of Israel in reference to Christ. Romans 15, 15 speaks of God as the God of consolation. And so whatever, whatever the reason that led to it, they saw something in Barnabas, in Joseph, to call him Barnabas, the son of consolation. They saw something in him that was Christ-like. Think about it. The son of consolation. Here's somebody who, who was like Christ and, and they saw God in him. And, and a consolation, a comfort, and an exhorter, he was. Acts 11, 23 and 24, who when he came, speaking of Barnabas to Antioch, and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. That's Barnabas. It was Barnabas who first introduced Saul of Tarsus to the leaders in Jerusalem. In Antioch, Barnabas enjoined himself to Saul. When relief was sent to Judea, it was sent at the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Paul were selected to bring a what would have been a very comforting letter from Jerusalem to the Gentiles. And Paul later called Barnabas, among other friends, he calls Barnabas a comfort unto me in Colossians. This is a great man in our New Testament. I think he often gets overlooked. He, his impact is, we probably couldn't state it all, the impact he had 
in, in the early church. And as we go through the book of Acts, we're obviously going to draw those out, and so we're not going to park it here. Um, but he had, a, he had a great role in the early church here in Jerusalem and then later in Antioch. But didn't Paul and Barnabas have a falling out? Yeah, but neither man was perfect. Barnabas withstood Paul over John Mark, and then Paul withstood Barnabas over leaving the Gentile table in Antioch when the leaders of Jerusalem showed up. But iron sharpeneth iron. And both men were, were helped by each other ultimately, even though there was disagreements. And, and you'll find before it's over with, everybody kissed and made up. A holy kiss, brother. <laughs> holy kissed and made up. And so, you know, there's going to be disagreements along the way. Right? But we can overcome those. Neither was perfect, but they both grew in the Lord as a result of their relationship. Now, when Pastor DeGarmo preached this, he asked the question, what would your surname be? And I think that's a very good question. And it's very humbling and sobering to think, what would mine be? He used the example of Bob, who's always late. You know, Bob the late. What would yours be? Amen. So I don't want to re-preach that, brother. You did a wonderful job. But I want to use Barnabas' Barnabas's example as an occasion to address those of you who are in the ministry or sense a call to the ministry. And really, this is for anybody who wants their life to be used serving God. God calls many of His servants from among the poor and the lower ranks of life, but not all. There have been those from among the very wealthy who have answered the call of God upon their life. These who could have lived with substantial wealth, but they chose to follow God's will instead. I think of William Borden every time I come to a thought like this. I've cited him before. His family made a fortune in silver mining in Colorado. But instead of being an heir to all of those riches, he followed God's call to be a missionary. Sadly, he never reached China. He died of meningitis while preparing for the field in Cairo, Egypt at the age of 25. I guess it's never been proven, but it has been said that, written, that his mom found written in his Bible the words, no reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. No reserve was said to be written in connection to when he renounced his fortune in favor of being a missionary. No retreat was when his father told him, you'll never hold a position in the family business. And no regrets was added shortly before he died in Egypt. And as suggested by Charles Erdman, his professor while at Yale, these words are inscribed on his grave in Cairo, Egypt. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. What a statement. You see, to the world it makes no sense. Why would you turn your back on all those millions? It makes no sense apart from a life in Christ. And, and listen, those who are in that position are often told, you can do more just by sending. Use your wealth that way. But no, you've got to do what God calls you to do. Of Moses, we read in Hebrews eleven twenty six, 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. 
for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Missionary Jim Elliott wrote in his journal on October 28, 1949, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He was just 21 when he penned those words. In seven years, he would be killed by the very people he went to go reach, the Yaka in Ecuador. Albert Barnes wrote, The ministry is a work of self-denial, and none should enter it who are not prepared to devote all to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will readily admit to a lesser extent, no doubt, but I understand what Albert Barnes wrote. It is a true statement. And Barnabas was one who understood this principle as well, is where I'm going with this. Do you remember what Elisha did when Elijah's mantle fell upon him? Elisha had been plowing, I believe, if I remember, it was like 12 yoke of oxen or something. It was a lot, is what I'm saying. And he slew the oxen. And he used the implements in plowing to boil their flesh. What was Elisha doing? He was... He was forsaking his old life. And the Bible says he went, let me see what it says here, I think I have it. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Elisha was cutting ties with the way he had made a living and the way that he had worked in the family And he cut ties with that to go follow a man that people thought was insane. Barnabas walked away from all of his worldly possessions. Are you catching this? In essence, I'm telling you, he killed the oxen and burned the implements. He said, I need to get rid of that. I'm no fool to get rid of what I can't keep to gain that which I can't lose. And I'm telling you, he was that kind of a guy. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. I'm all in for God. He can have it all. It it, it may be, I know we're not told, and I hope I'm not taking too much liberty here, but it may be that he could have had a life of ease on a very desirable island. I mean, God called me to Cyprus, sweet, you know. No, I'm where it's minus something right now. Barnabas is just that kind of guy. Jesus said in Luke 14, So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. But Jesus also said in Matthew 19, 29, And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. That's a good trade. And because Barnabas had parted ways with the things of this world, when the time came for him to go into the ministry, quote-unquote, full-time, he was prepared. By the time we get to Acts 13, we're going to find out that the Holy Ghost said to the church in Antioch, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. It started way back here. And probably before this, but 
the earliest record we have is Barnabas sold everything. And he cut his ties. And we ought to live our lives in such a manner that we aren't tied to anything that is going to hinder God's call upon our lives. I'm not telling you to sell all that you have tonight. But I am saying to be in a position where you can easily say goodbye to this world's goods. Be in a position to take up your cross and and follow Christ. There are those who come to me about the ministry. Usually the first question is, where should I go to seminary? To which I always answer, get out of debt. Where is that seminary located? (laughs) You'll do fine being faithful to your local church, but that's another thing. I say that because I want people to understand, if you're going to be in the ministry Get your house in order so that you aren't hindered by the things of this world. And you be in a position to forsake everything if necessary. Barnabas surrendered all to the Lord. Can that be said of you? It doesn't mean you're wearing sheepskins and goatskins and wanderings in the deserts and living in caves and of whom the world was not worthy. No, listen, I am just saying though, if God reaches down through the Holy Ghost and says, separate me that one, are you going to be ready? Yeah, that is good. Because I can tell you I have met those who by their own admission told God one thing and did another. Because when the rubber met the road, they didn't want to let go of this piece of the world, whatever it was. And I'm telling you from personal experience, God's going to put his finger on something. And he's going to say, I need that. I've given you my testimony. He needed, he needed lands from me. And he needed my parents. And I've had to let all that go. Because you cannot be my disciple unless you're willing to let go of everything. Live in a way that you're ready. Barnabas surrendered it. Is there anything you need to surrender? You know, is there anything in your life you say, I really just don't want to get rid of that. I'm not saying it's sinful. I just don't want to part with that. I've been there. And I said, God, would you require so much? God said, yeah. You know, you're likely not going to get rich doing this, right? Maybe one day my face will be on the book cover after I get my teeth cleaned, January 31st. (laughs) Thanks to my wife. Look, I ain't been to the dentist since I retired, okay? That's too much information probably. (laughs) So I wouldn't look good on a book jacket is what I'm saying. But you're likely not going to get rich doing this. But you'll have far greater riches and glory than you could ever amass here upon this earth. In Mark 8, 34 through 36, Jesus said, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? 
I left it all for thee, hast thou left all for me. I've borne it all for thee, what hast thou borne for me. I bring rich gifts to thee, what hast thou brought to me. I hope the love of Christ will constrain you to realize he gave it all. And now he asks for us to lay down our life as a living sacrifice for him. Let's pray.